Hello everyone and welcome to this new podcast of Johnson Insight. Ayaz and I will today be your moderator. In a few minutes, Ben Tamblin, the Director of Inclusive Design at Microsoft, will join us to talk about inclusivity and the importance of this kind of design nowadays. Microsoft is pretty well known for being inclusive, thanks to the bright Xbox, but also for the voice assistant Contara. So if you want to learn about how to be more inclusive and how to put customer in the middle of your podcast, stay with us. Thank you, Ben, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to looking forward to our discussion. Tell us a little bit about your position as Director of Inclusive Design at Microsoft, mm -hmm. and maybe in the process, tell us why you became a designer. Yeah. So I, I think of myself as, as an accidental designer. Uh, I'm not a designer by trade. Uh, I didn't go to a specific design school. Uh, I went to business school like a lot of other people. Um, I kind of fell into design, I think, primarily because of a number of roles I was doing at, at Microsoft. Um, I think of myself as a, as, as a naturally creative person. Um, and when I first began at Microsoft, gosh, almost 16 years ago now, um, one of the things that I recognized was that there's this incredible company that I think is largely misunderstood. Um, and I actually joined Microsoft in the UK. And it's truthfully, the, I think the reason that I joined the company 16 years ago is still true today. Um, I think every single person at the company has this unique opportunity to help reframe or reshape the perception of who we are as a company. Um, and even today, like I could walk down a street in the middle of downtown Seattle and, and grab a handful of people off the street and ask them to give me just a single word that defines Microsoft. And I guarantee you, even in 2020, I would still get Bill Gates. Uh, I would still get Windows. Uh, I would still get Office. And perhaps at a stretch, I would get Xbox. Um, and the reality is, is that Bill hasn't actually worked full time at the company now for almost 16 years as well. Um, Windows is this incredible operating system, but you know, without a doubt, it's very much part of a previous computing era that sort of focused on client server-based computing as we've moved into the cloud, uh, into a cloud era. The importance of an operating system, I think has probably shifted. Office is this incredible productivity suite and uh, we have the luxury of being able to use incredible incredible sets of technology to help us stay connected each and every day. But I think most people's perception of Office is still grounded in a set of personal productivity apps like Word and Excel and PowerPoint. And the reality is the way that we work today is fundamentally shifting. Um, it's not so much about what we can create independently, it's more about what we can actually create together. Um, and then we've got Xbox. Xbox is this amazing gaming platform, but when you think about Xbox, the percentage of Microsoft's all-up gaming revenue is relatively small. It's somewhere between eight to 10%. So we've got this incredible company that's largely misunderstood. So a big part of my role, regardless of the job that I've done, um, has really been about reframing and reshaping this perception of who we are as a company. And so that began 15, 16 years ago in the UK. Uh, I've done a number of engineering roles, marketing roles. Uh, I was chief of staff for one of our corporate vice presidents uh, a few years back. And in the last five or six years, I've had the opportunity to work very closely in a communications function, helping shape 
the perception of the company through the voice of the CEO. Um, and about 12 months ago, I embarked on a completely different journey to head up the work we do around inclusive design. So my job, the role, I, the role I play is much the same. My job is to be able to tell incredible stories about the amazing technology that we bring to market every day. Um, when I think about how that then backs into some of the work we do around inclusive design, it's about working very, very closely with engineers, designers, and researchers from across the company to ensure that every product and every service that we bring to market every day um, is inclusive by design um, and that we're bringing people in that are representative of the diversity of the customer base that we have, which in essence is three or four billion people across the globe. So, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Just to sort of build upon what you were saying uh, mm. before you came to your current position about your role in charge of inclusive design, how you see the general image that people have of Microsoft, how you see that might be likely to change in the near future or in the, like, the midterm future? Look, I, I think it's started to change. I think it's probably started to change over the last six to seven years. I think with such an Adela coming on as the CEO of the company, um, there, there are a couple of, I think, sort of tectonic shifts that happened more or less at the same time in sort of the, I would say sort of between 2012 and probably 2015. I think one was the fact that we recognized that in order for us to compete and remain relevant um, as a technology leader, um, we need to make some fundamental shifts to the way in which we structured our business. And a big part of that was not just embracing the cloud, but becoming a, a, a cloud first company um, and recognizing that um, our future was very much in the cloud. It required changes to the way in which we created software. It, it, it required changes in terms of the way in which we thought about the business model. Um, and it also required a fundamental shift in terms of the culture of the company. And when you bring on a CEO like Sachin Adela, you, he's the kind of guy that I think he's the ultimate change agent. You know, he's, the, he's a guy that can begin to start to turn a company that's 120,000 people and begin to reorient them to focus more on this idea of how do we begin to provide and empower every single organization and every single person on the planet to achieve more. And when you start to make that shift, um, by its nature, it's going to, force every single person in the company to start to look at ways in which we can make that make those changes. One of those changes is some of the work that we've done around inclusive design and recognizing that we have a unique opportunity to not just be a thought leader in inclusive design, but also back that up with a set of product truth as well. So you were talking about the fact that you had to be a bit more inclusive. So I was thinking at Microsoft and I was wondering about the Xbox accessibility controller. So yeah. can you explain us how you can get such a design and give it other examples maybe? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the Xbox accessibility controller is, is, a, is, a, is an incredible example of inclusive design, but there's probably three or four others that I think um, are, are equally significant in terms of, in terms of some of the work that we've done. Um, you know, I, th I think first and foremost, I think what set the 
accessibility controller apart was the fact that we built and designed that product in partnership with people with disabilities. Um, I think one of the challenges that a lot of organizations have and a lot of design organizations have is they're not necessarily able to recognize where exclusion actually exists. Um, and the reality is, is that every company in the world, I think, knows when exclusion is happening because we're ultimately solving problems using our own biases. Um, when we begin to start to learn from diversity, like tr like really learn from the experience of people with disabilities, then we can we can we can tend to create not just a set of products that we can solve for one, but more importantly, we can begin to start to extend to a number of other number of other people. And I think this was true with, with the Xbox accessibility controller. We built and designed that product um, with the intention of helping people with mobility challenges um, to allow them to be able to gain in the same way that, that anyone else on the planet can. The thing that I think was, was fascinating about this project was not just the process that we went through, but really thinking about that entire product development supply chain from beginning to end. Um, we typically look at the way in which we design projects through what we refer to as a human-centric design lens, where you know, very right at the beginning, we look at user needs, and then we look at you know, the business and the technology justification for, in essence, building out a set of products. And then we begin to start to move into that product design process where we first empathize and redefine. And we do that in partnership with people with disabilities. We then move into an ideation phase. And again, we'll bring in people with disabilities to help us ideate on some of those product concepts. Then we move into a, a prototyping scenario. And again, we will begin to start to prototype and build out uh, a set of mock-ups in partnership with people with disabilities. And then finally, we sort of move into a launch phase. Um, and again, we start to think about that, that launch moment, not just through the lens of how do we bring a product to market, but then how do we bring people in to be able to advocate on our behalf? Um, and so when I think about that entire product development supply chain and the, the role that people with disabilities played in each and every part of that, it helped inform not just the product itself, it informed the advertising campaign that supported it, um, even down to the packaging of the product. Um, we spent a huge amount of time working with people with disabilities to really look at how could we create a set of packaging that was equally inclusive. And so rather than having a whole bunch of twist ties that you often see when you unpack a piece of technology, um, there was in essence a looped ribbon at the seal of the product box that make it very easy for it to pull open and the box to just magically open. Um, it was in essence designed on a hinge at the lower back of the box. So you didn't need anything more than a broad stroke with your arm to begin to start to open up and unpack, unpack that entire box. Um, so every single piece, every single detail of that product design um, was, was really was really well thought through. Um, there are a handful of other examples. Um, 
Others in the gaming, the gaming side of things, we have this piece of technology called Copilot, which allows you to link two controllers together so that another gamer can actually use them as if they were a single controller. And you know, this was designed again for moments when you know perhaps one gamer needed some assistance with the console. But you know, to be honest, in my home, it's something we use all the time, uh, and it's an opportunity for me to to really play uh, and connect with my 10 year old son, who's, uh, who's, a, who's a big gamer as well. The, the other example I give you is a piece of technology called Microsoft Translator, which in essence translates text, voice, voice conversations, camera photos, screenshots, all in near real time in around about 70 different languages. Um, and this was a technology that was developed by our research teams probably going back about five or six years ago now. And the intent of this technology was really to bring people together in ways that wasn't possible. So as an example, Constance, you could be speaking French, uh, I could be speaking English, uh, and we could bring in some other people perhaps from Brazil who are speaking Portuguese uh, or from Turkey who are speaking Turkish. And all of us could speak the language that we're most used to, but because we can translate in essence four different languages in near real time, nothing is lost in translation. And so in essence, we're on this incredible path and we're not there yet. And I hope, I, I truly hope we will get there in my lifetime where this notion of a foreign language no longer exists. We still speak the language that we're, that we're most familiar with but the idea that the language is foreign or that someone doesn't understand us, that potentially begins to go away. And man, like you can give me all the self-driving cars in the world. Like this is the kind of technology that is so inherent within the humanity of who we are as people that I think that's the stuff that could really has the potential to change the world. And when I think about how we've then applied that technology across Microsoft, one of the things that we realized was that not only could we begin to start to solve this challenge around bringing people closer together, but it also had a significant benefit for people who were deaf or hard of hearing. And so now you'll see that same technology uh, embedded in captions that are part of PowerPoint, part of Office, uh, part of Microsoft Teams, so that you can begin to start to communicate with a greater level of fidelity that you, than we ever have done before. I was wondering, is the Kinect and the fact that the controller can vibrate a part of, for example, inclusivity too? It, it, it is. I think a big part of that gaming experience is being able to provide a variety of different cues for what's going on in, in any given game. Um, sometimes it's, it's just simply being able to provide a set of cap, closed captions so that um, someone who's deaf or hard of hearing can begin to understand what's going on in the game. Equally, it's about providing some more physical type feedback and whether that's just a gentle vibration through the controller to let you know what's going on. It's really about trying to immerse any gamer into that experience in a way that it's not just visual, it's also through touch. Um, and if we could make games smell in incredibly interesting ways, I'm sure we could go and try and invent that, but we're not quite there just yet. So taste and smell is still something that we're working on. But in, in essence, you get the opportunity to tap into a multi-sensory multi experience. Um, and whilst that, again, whilst that was never necessarily built or created or designed 
with people with disabilities in mind, this idea of building for one and extending to many, I think shows that there is an opportunity to, to use some of those capabilities and ensure that every single person can benefit from them. Do you think on a certain level, there's a way in which we as a society need to fundamentally reconsider the way in which we view people with disabilities? Yes, is the, the super short answer, answer to that. Um, let me give you a slightly longer answer. Um, here's the reality. There is, um, there is about 15% of the world's population, um, which roughly, roughly equates to around about a billion people in the world that experience disability on a daily basis. But, but here's the reality. That just means that there's 6.4 billion people on this planet who I think of as being temporarily able-bodied. Every single person on this planet is going to experience some form of disability in their life, in their lifetime. One of the things that I think has been, a, it's been fascinating um, over the last nine months is as, as we've, as we've as a global community kind of gone through this pandemic, um, I think it's provided, you know, you know, frankly, a, a fascinating example in terms of, in terms of how, how we, how, not only how we interact together, um, but, um, you know, some of the challenges that come along with that too. Um, you know, it's helped us recognize that, you know, there are some product and service gaps that, you know, we have to address. Like if you just take meetings as an example, um, you know, when everyone is dialing into a meeting, um, it actually forces us to communicate differently. And it also forces us to, to listen differently as well. You know, on one hand, you know, we're able to, in, in, in this time of quarantine, we're able to sort of deconstruct this sort of typical in-group, out-group dynamics that I think are inevitable when half the people join a meeting from a conference room in an office and the other half join remotely. Um, you know, in essence, we're creating an we're now creating an environment where I think more people can actually be heard. Um, the flip side of that is that the cognitive load that comes from listening and communicating in new ways, I think, is has created a whole bunch of new challenges around how we collectively manage fatigue. And you know, for people with disabilities, these challenges are often even more acute. Um, but what it shows is it shows that there is this this spectrum of personas or mismatch of human interactions that sort of go everywhere from this idea of someone, you know, if I think about it from the point of view of, um, of being able to hear, you know, you can imagine, um, you know, someone who is deaf or someone who has an ear infection um, or someone who's just working in a loud environment, um, you know, think of, uh, a drive-through operator in the middle of middle of McDonald's, or an investment banker trying to process trades on a busy trade floor, all of those, in a way, are examples of permanent, all the way through to temporary disability. In a way, um, so we're constantly dealing with these challenges each and every day. We've just never thought about them through the lens of accessibility, and you know, I think that's a big part of the job we're trying to do with inclusive design is recognize that, and again, it's more than just accessibility. We're now starting to, we now have to look at 
this notion of inclusion through multiple different lenses. It's not just about accessibility. It's about thinking through the unique biases that we have and how biases are actually built into the software uh, and the products that we create. We've got to think about it through the lens of race. Um, you know, I think if there's one thing that's been a critical opportunity, certainly in America, and I think largely across the globe, you know, off the back of George Floyd's murder back in May, I think it's created a unique opportunity for an entire community to begin to come together to recognize the privilege that they have and at the same time recognize where there's opportunity to begin to start to create a set of products that are truly representative of the collective humanity of the world. Um, and that means ensuring that we are able to gather multi a multitude of different perspectives from a multitude of different backgrounds, race, gender, orientation, um, accessibility. Um, all of these become really, really important dimensions for how we think about inclusive design. Just one super quick question to follow up on that. Yeah, please. Uh, talking about you know representation of people from all these different backgrounds, do you think then that there's a place for people with long-term disabilities in positions of inclusive design at companies like Microsoft then? Um, we're, we're already down that path. My our chief accessibility officer and, and my boss is a woman by the name of Jenny Lee Fleury. Um, she is, she's deaf. Um, she's a truly, truly phenomenal human being. She's uh, she, some of the work she, some of the, some, some of the work she does, and the causes that she champions, not just inside of the company but outside of the company, are, are truly phenomenal. Um, we were chatting just the other day that um, you know more and more as we start to see greater levels of represent, representation and leadership in companies, um, and beyond just the role of chief accessibility officer, in the same way that. Uh, a person of colour shouldn't just be in a position of uh, chief diversity officer. Um, we've got to begin to start to recognise that the more and the more in which the leaders that we aspire to begin to be representative of the diversity of the community that we're part of, then all of a sudden we begin to start to make some progress. Um, I think we're just now starting to see that organisations like Microsoft, like other leaders in other industries, are just are beginning to recognize the importance of ensuring that you know leadership teams boards uh need to be representative of the customers that they serve um, and that means ensuring that there are not only people of color um, but uh diverse diverse boards from an accessibility standpoint from a gender standpoint um from an orientation standpoint every single part of that is a, is a reflection of who we are as a company. And so the more we can begin to sort of show that representation, um, over time, I think it will have a significant impact in terms of the perception of who we are as a company, which you know, as I stated up front at the top of this call, I think is the most important role that I can play and that any other employee at the company can play. So you've, You've been talking about the fact that there are people with disabilities by Microsoft, and that made me think about that example, that how Microsoft encouraged inclusive design for the Xbox with an inclusive design sprint, which mm -hmm. was a workshop bringing together designers and gamers with disabilities. Is um, some workshop like that still going on? And 
why do we need to meet with people with disabilities to make the right tools? Yeah, um, you know, it was, it, it is still going on. We are still running inclusive design sprints. What the, the, the approach that we would historically have taken is we would bring a whole bunch of people either to Redmond uh, or we would bring a bunch of people to a central location and we would spend two or three days immersing them in the technology and gathering feedback. Um, obviously, that's not something that's possible uh, in the environment that we're in right now. Um, so a lot of that needs to be done remotely. Um, you know, the beauty of working at Microsoft is that we have access to a set of technology tools that for the most part make that transitional shift relatively simple. There's a couple of things that we've learned that I think um, I think have been, have been really fascinating learning experiences actually. One is there are actually some benefits from doing inclusive design sprints remotely. Um, because not everyone is in the same room, you disable this notion of groupthink because invariably the three of us could be sitting in, in, in a room and talking about a particular product and uh, I could sort of say something along the lines of wow you know Constance has got this really incredible idea I agree with her and on one hand you kind of think wow that's great we're on the right path but at the same time there's an element of no I really want to I really want to understand your unique perspective and if all you're going to do is agree with your colleague then that's I need something more. Um, and I think the beauty of doing this remotely is it, is it creates what I typically think of as slow thinking time, where you have to almost take a step back, step out of the, step out of the environment of the inclusive design sprint and genuinely think independently about what this product could look like. And the reality is, is it's actually generated a bunch of ideas that I don't think we would have got to had we still been in an environment where we're all getting together in a single room. So there are some benefits that come. Now, there are also some challenges, like, you know, just the ability to be able to, you know, running, running meetings digitally is actually a hell of a lot more difficult than running them in person uh, and being able to coordinate multiple different points of view um, from multiple different places and ensuring that technology works in an equitable way for every single person, um, especially when you're uh, designing the kinds of experiences where you need the input from people with disabilities. Um, there, there's a there's an operational challenge that uh, that we need to kind of think through. But uh, I guess the beauty of working at Microsoft is that we've got plenty of people that can help us with that. So, I was wondering, does it take longer to make an inclusive tool as a normal one? Um, the, the short answer is I think there's a there's there's more time I think spent up front. I would say over over a period of time, the answer is absolutely not. I, I think one of the one of the questions, in fact, I get a lot is that um, is this idea that inclusive design is is expensive or difficult, um, which I think is in essence the the, the question you're asking. Um, so much of the work that technology companies have sort of applied to sort of engineering design and design is, is has been sort of grounded, I guess, in, in the in Pareto's law or, or the 80-20 or the rule, right? So th there's this common misconception that, you know, the center of the curve uh, or, or in essence an 80% majority of the population sort of exists within that curve. And we, and we make this assumption, which, you know, I think over time has been proven out to be dangerous and frankly, just wrong. 
um, that the that that eighty percent represents the majority of people, and we then treat the remaining twenty percent as sort of outliers or edge cases. Um, and so, you know, this is what I talk about when this idea when we have this idea that you know exclusion happens when we we try to solve problems using our own biases, and when something like that eighty twenty rule is is applied, you know, I think you know, those biases are inevitable. So I don't necessarily think inclusive design is expensive and I don't think it necessarily costs that much over the long term. But if you design to begin with from an exclusive standpoint, um, I think exclusive design and the assumptions that come along with them um, can end up costing companies, you know, frankly, a fortune in having to then go back and retrofit a set of services or products to make them more inclusive. Um, so the reality is, I think the more we sort of identify that we have to think through early design and prototyping, ideation, uh, and, and even business case development through the lens of inclusion, then all of a sudden we begin to start to build a platform that you can begin to build on that is gonna, is gonna support you for the long term. If you have to come back and, and in essence rebuild a lot of the scaffolding and the infrastructure that comes along with it, you're in essence, I think of it like a house rebuild, right? Like in, instead of, if, if you don't build a house right the first time, the chances of it coming down are pretty high. Um, but if you go and build with the infrastructure that you need, you can begin to start to build on top of that platform for many, many years to come. So that's, that's the way I think of it. A lot of companies are probably yet to fully jump into inclusive design in all of their products. What do you think is the best way to encourage companies like that to do so? I think there's a, look, I think there's a really interesting question around why, why aren't people prepared to, prepared to make that jump? Um, and I kind of think about it from a couple of different perspectives. I think a lot of it comes from, from just fear. Um, you know, frankly, fear of, fear of making, making an error. Um, I, I kind of think about, I kind of think about this from, from three different perspectives. I think first and foremost, I think this idea of making mistakes, I think is, is a fundamental design concept of how we think certainly about software, but, I, but frankly about any product, you know, I think, um, I, can't, I don't know who said it, but this notion that mistakes end up being the portals of discovery, I think is important because we're going to make mistakes and we're going to say the wrong things. Um, and I think if we spend our entire lives as designers, like trying to avoid those mistakes, I think is just a futile exercise. Um, I personally think there's two skills that every single designer needs. Um, first, they need to be perpetually curious. Um, and two, they need to be able to listen. Like, and I mean, like really listen. Um, Cause I think when we, when we come together and create, you know, in essence, a common space, and we actually can sit face to face and share stories with people with disabilities in particular, two, two things happen. One, we, we develop a courage that I don't think we ever knew was possible. And this incredible wonder and curiosity, because for the first time, we've kind of climbed into someone else's skin and walked around in it, right? And the person who's sharing their experience or telling their story um, is being heard, like really, like really being heard. And, you know, in many ways, like being heard in that way is, 
so close to being love that it's almost in almost I think it's almost indistinguishable right so if we can create and cultivate an environment like that where we are truly open to listening and understanding the perspectives of other people um then you know mistakes are nothing more than I think kind of opportunities to learn from and that's the kind of environment that I think allows us to ensure that inclusive design becomes pervasive, not just through Microsoft, but through through any organization. What product am I, what product am I most proud of today? Or what project am I most proud of today? Um, it would be easy to point to a dozen different pro products. And um, for me, that's a little bit like choosing your favorite child. <laughs> <laughs> Look, for me, I think if there's, if there's one thing that I think I'm most proud of, and again, this is not necessarily a project that I've been involved in any more than just being a participant, but when I think about a fundamental shift Microsoft as a company has gone through over the last six or seven years, the, the cultural shift that it's made, um, embracing this notion of developing a more of a growth mindset. Sachi and Adela has often talked about this idea of, hey, we need, there's a hell of a lot of smart people that work at Microsoft, um, but we have to move from being know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. Um, and that means that you, you just need to be open to being able to understand new perspectives and as a company of 120,000 people, to see 120,000 people begin to start to make that shift and make that cultural movement, um, the impact that it's had um, in terms of who we are as a company, how we represent ourselves, um, our share price, um, how we represent ourselves, not just to customers, but to partners, to financial analysts, you name it. Um, I, I think anyone that's been watching has probably recognized that this is a company that's gone through an incredible transformation um, and come out the other end looking very, very different from what they did six, seven years ago. So the reality is, is that's probably, that's probably the project that I think you know, for the most part, I think it's been the one I've taken most joy and pleasure out of. Um, you know, I've had a front row seat to watch a 100, uh, you know, a, a, a multi-billion dollar company uh, transform before my very eyes. So, you know, that, that's an incredible experience and one that, uh, you know, I think provides so many incredibly rich stories that uh, I'll probably have a lifetime of stories to tell over the result of that experience. So. Thank you so much, Ben, for your time. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed chatting with you. I hope we will see you soon to talk about inclusive design again and to maybe see your next project. I'd love to show it. That, that, that would be wonderful. Thanks for listening to Constance, myself, and Ben Tamblin, the head of inclusive design at Microsoft, as we discussed inclusivity in this episode of Johnson's Insights podcast. Join us next episode when we'll be speaking with Diana Van Heerden, Project Portfolio Manager at Scania Benelux, as we talk about the difficulties for women in project management. See you next time.